there's there's still a lot to learn um and you're gonna spend the entire you know the, the rest of your career learning you've never learned everything that you need to know an architect never knows all that they need to know welcome to building ideas exceptional people discussing inspired experiences that create an enduring impact on our communities. Building Ideas is presented by MSA Design. To learn more about MSA, visit us on the web at www.msaarch.com. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Bill Baker. We're glad to have you with us. Today brings another one of our friends and family editions of Building Ideas, where we bring a, a leader in our firm to the table and have a conversation and learn about their processes and influences and uh, just some of the great things they love about design and what we do. And today, as I'm really excited to bring him on board. He's been with us over a dozen years. Um, he's an associate and senior project architect in the firm and one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. Dan Montgomery joins us. He's an associate at MSA Design. He's a native of Lisbon, Ohio, a self-proclaimed, quote, small town in the woods up in northeast Ohio near Youngstown, and later in life made his way as a teenager down through Circleville and eventually to UC, home of the Bearcats, where he graduated from the College of Design, Art, Architecture, and Planning. Um, throughout his career, he's been involved in institutional and civic work, and he has risen into senior leadership at our firm as a key project architect on many of our firm's civic, educational, and sport projects. Dan has a passion for architecture and loves to teach and mentor those newer to the profession by sharing his vast experiences and implementations that made him successful. Dan believes that when it comes to design, the best designs are often the simplest. Every design move is done with reason and purpose to support the overarching concept. This Eagle Scout is a passionate member of his local planning and zone committee, pedestrian safety committee, and a director position on the board of the Northside Community Council, one of the greatest and funkiest neighborhoods in greater Cincinnati. And outside of work, you can find Dan tending to a small garden using fresh herbs to create Italian-inspired dishes, eagerly anticipating the next time he can travel through the streets of Italy. Uh, Dan and his husband, Brett, reside in Cincinnati's Northside neighborhood. Enjoy this conversation with one of the kindest people you'll ever meet and a great architect and a great human being. So welcome to Building Ideas, today's exceptional person, Dan Montgomery. It's an honor and a privilege to have the pride of Pickaway County on the podcast. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how, uh, how a kid from central Ohio ended up being a, an architect and a leader in a firm. Well, uh, let me start off, I guess, by saying I'm not really originally from central Ohio, uh -huh. uh, Northeast Ohio, a little town called Lisbon, Ohio, oh, nice. uh, south of Youngstown, kind of out in the middle of the woods. Um, Grew up there until I was a sophomore in high school and then moved to Circleville, Ohio, which is in Pickaway County, as you noted, uh, <laughs> just out of Columbus. Um, my parents still live there. Uh, all my relatives are still up in Northeast Ohio, up near Canton, Maslin area. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, so lived in Circleville until uh, until I graduated, went off to UC uh, mm -hmm. here in Cincinnati, and I've been here ever since. Yeah. So, what, what, uh, why architecture? What was the inspiration for going into design and architecture for you? So when I was a kid, there was a, uh, the, 
this this village near to, to where I, I lived. I, I lived on a country road and everything, but the, the nearest village or whatever you want to call it was, was just a crossroads yeah. called Havers. And there was a um, there was an old brick house there that was just collapsing in on itself and whatever. And and that was it was built by Gideon Gaver back in 1805 or whatever. And I was just fascinated with that as a little kid. And uh, just started doing research on the history of the area, the history of all the different houses in the area, and just started getting a fascination with architecture. Mm-hmm. About the same time in school, we were starting to learn how to draw, you know, construct perspective drawings and things like that. Um, so I was I was doing a lot of drawings of, of houses. Um, one of my art teachers had suggested maybe I go into architecture and I was like, what's, what's this architecture thing? I I don't know what that is. And, uh, so I started looking into that a little bit. I was probably in eighth grade or so seventh grade. I don't know. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I was still torn between that, uh, and, um, historic preservation, Mm -hmm. which I was really interested in and, um, doing something nature wise, like being a forester or, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, really then when I was in, um, high school, I had an art teacher, Peg Spears. Mm-hmm. Um, she's now at, uh, I think it's called Kutztown university out in Pennsylvania. She's a, a professor out there. So she's still around. She, um, she recommended that I get involved in the humanities youth project at falling water, um, which was a program for high school students that um, uh, basically you go to falling water in Pennsylvania, signed by Frank Lloyd Wright in 1936. um, And you stay there for a week and you study the building with a bunch of different professors um, museum curators, uh, the folks from the Frank Lloyd Wright Foundation and from Falling Water, um, they take you through the building and, and analyze different parts of it, whatever. Um, I did not like modern architecture, uh-huh. and I remember looking at pictures of it and saying, no, I don't want to go. I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> and finally, I, I broke down. I was like, okay, I'll go, and went and um, loved it. And uh, started to develop an appreciation then for Frank Lloyd Wright's work and mm-hmm. um, and modern architecture as well. Yeah. So uh, that if I hadn't have gone through that program, I don't know what I, um, you know, where I, where I'd be right now. I guess. So I guess I have Peg Spears to thank for that. <laughs> is um is Falling Water your favorite Wright building, or are there others that you discovered through that that maybe even speak to you? I think Falling Water is probably my favorite Wright building. Um, I have uh, I have been to a few others, uh, but not by any means all of them, or even close to that. I, I've never been to Taliesin East or West. I want to see both of those, um, but uh, but I do love Falling Water. Yeah, there's something about that house. Um, I tell anybody who's in Western PA or near Pittsburgh, you need to go see it. Just to there's just something magical about that building. And it's funny, it's um, the last night that we were there, we were supposed to have dinner on the terraces at Falling Water. And all week up until that point, we had been going through with different 
you know, professors and whatever, we weren't supposed to touch anything. Um, we were, we were watched the entire time we were there and weren't allowed to just wander around on our own. That last night we were supposed to have a candlelight dinner on the, on the terraces Uh and it rained. So we didn't do that, but after it stopped raining, we all walked down to the house, pitch black Uh in the middle of the, the mountains in Pennsylvania um, pitch black and it's just this gleaming box there in the woods hovering over the, the waterfall um, it's a completely different experience at night mm. went inside and they they let us sit on the furniture we were allowed yeah. to wander around um, and just explore the place and it's it's completely different at night it's very inwardly focused uh-huh. as opposed to during the day your 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 view is constantly focused out yeah wherever you night, look is is the woods right in the mountains? You get this reflection on the windows at night, and it's and it makes the rooms feel um, just cozy and, and uh-huh. comfortable. Well, that's pretty cool. So, who, in addition to your art teacher, who else was uh, influential for you on this path? Um, I would say um, one of my former uh, employers, uh, Craig Rambo. Mm-hmm. Who no, Craig, you're a good guy. You no. Know, um, he, that, that was my first job out of school. Um, he, uh, he really sort of took me under his wing, um, and, and gave me a lot of encouragement, um, pushed me towards different, um, training courses, things like that. And it was just sort of uh, a good mentor, um, at that point in my life. So, uh, he also pushed me to, um, he stressed community involvement as being very important. Yeah. Uh, and that sort of got me involved in Clifton town meeting to a certain degree when I was living in Clifton. Um, and it's carried through now into Northside, uh, where I live now. So. Well, good. Yeah. Talk about, um, architect. I know you, you've really been active in your communities over the years. You alluded to it. How do you feel about, um, the importance of having an architect involved in kind of civic life, civic organizations, maybe outside of the business or the design business. Talk about that influence and what do you think the benefits are of that? Well, architects are problem solvers. That's, that's what we have to do um, uh, on a daily basis. And uh, we have to deal with people from multiple um, backgrounds, multiple interests. They've got, they've got their own motives and we have to sort of bring all of that together and, and, sort of come up with a a resolution Mm -hmm. that's what we do on a daily basis with our projects and i think that carries over well into the public realm as well Mm -hmm. Uh, i know uh uh, i'm involved in northside community council now it's been interesting uh hearing the concerns of the public and trying to educate them on uh, the use of public funds uh things of that nature and just sort of try to um, get the public a little bit more educated on that process and also at the same time convey those those concerns um, to the developers in a constructive way, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Kind of help shape the narrative, if you will. Right. Right. So, um, you know, through that, and you mentioned in most normal years, your particular neighborhood that I know you love living in Northside here in the city usually has a few development projects. There's There's a bunch of them now for... Right. Various reasons, because it's a really, I tell people it's one of the coolest places in Cincinnati. Just go see it, because there's nothing like there's nothing like Northside anywhere else in the city. <laughs> um, you know, 
how has uh, do you think though you know COVID's been crazy this past year? You know, we've talked a lot about that at the firm and. Um, do you think that's had any effect on Northside or is all of this part of result of COVID and maybe demand, or is this just completely independent? Um, just, just because Northside's a cool neighborhood. I don't think it has. Um, I, I don't think it's had any, any effect on the development that we're seeing right now in Northside. Yeah. Um, but uh, the bigger thing, I guess, is deadlines for grant money. Um, yeah. That's, pushing a few of these developments to happen like quickly. Sure. Um, so all of a sudden it's, it's on everybody's radar and we've got to come up with something quickly. So, yeah. uh, but COVID has, I think had a, a an impact on the neighborhood um, yeah. uh, in general. Um, once uh, one of the things that I loved about Northside and being here during COVID was early on, somebody came up with the idea of putting out scarecrows in their yards um, <laughs> to scare the coronavirus away. So they were called <laughs> scarecrows and they were encouraging people in the neighborhood to put these up. And it sounds pretty stupid and everything, but no, it doesn't walking sounds- around the neighborhood. It was, it was amazing seeing how creative people were getting with these things. Yeah. Um, it started off with a bunch of people putting up, um, basically scarecrows that had plague masks on uh, <laughs> like you see in, in Venice during Mardi Gras. Yeah. Um, but then that, that changed to, you know, some people were putting up things with gas masks on, or then, then it just turned into crazy monster like scarecrows. Um, basically an art project. I think, there were, I think there were over 200 of them at one point. And there was a website put up where it showed all of the scarecrows and where they were in the neighborhood. And it was just great walking around the neighborhood, seeing all your neighborhoods walking around or all, yeah. all, all of your neighbors walking around, checking out all these things in the neighborhood. It gave us something to do when, yeah. <laughs> when we were just, yeah. still just trying to get used to being indoors all the time. So, um, but it, but I think it, it's also had a negative effect on some of the businesses yeah. in Northside. Um, you know, I, I think some of them have had to, to shut down and cease operations for a while. Um, but, uh, but others are, are, are trying to push through this in a modified way, yeah. uh, like second place. Um, they've just got their patio open and that's it. Yeah. Uh, so if it's raining, you're, you're not going to hang out at second place. Yeah. Um, but somehow they're making things work. So yeah, for such a social neighborhood, cause it isn't, its own unique entertainment area. I can see why that have a big impact. So stepping back in a bigger, bigger picture, how do you think, um, I know you do a a significant amount of public safety work, you know, civic municipal work with us on, on, on help lead that team, Um, whether it's within the context of that market or just architecture in general, what are you learning from COVID and how do you think it's going to impact architecture, building construction, not necessarily from an economic demand, but, maybe from a, a conceptual perspective, you know, design perspective. I, I kind of think that in the future, we're going to see more demand for more flexibility, um, possibly wider corridors, things like that. Just, just to be able to keep some, some distance from people, but flexibility I think is going to be key. Um, just to be able to reconfigure things easily if need be. Uh-huh. You know, this is this isn't the first time that we've had uh, an outbreak like this, a pandemic, yeah. uh, and it's not going to be the last time either. 
And there's some people that are saying that it'll probably happen again in about 10 years. Mm -hmm. So I think we've just got to, got to keep in mind what things are like right now Mm -hmm. and plan our buildings in a way that, that it can accommodate life in, in another pandemic like this, if it needs to. Yeah, Mm, that's good. I I think we're going to see a lot of, of um, cleaner air. Uh, solutions as well going into yeah. buildings. Probably going back to open windows to a lot more natural, you know, the ability to open things. Yeah. Right. Which isn't a bad thing, right? Right. Not necessarily a bad thing. Okay. Let's pivot. Um, you, you talked about one inspired experience, you know, falling water and have, that was instrumental to you, but, you know, stepping back and inspired experiences other than falling water, because I know you've seen a lot, you've traveled a lot, you've, you've traveled around the world. You know, what's a key place, space, or experience in the built environment that's inspired you, Dan Montgomery? <laughs> uh, the Cinque Terre in Italy. Yeah. Why? Uh, I, I think I've talked to you about that before, but yeah. the Cinque Terre, it's, it's these five villages um, that are about, you know, 1,000 to 2,000 years old, uh, built on cliffs uh, on the sides of, of mountains on the Italian Riviera. And thanks to Rick Steves and his travel show, um, all of us Americans flock there every summer. Love Rick uh, Steves. Love Rick, Rick Steves. <laughs> He's big in our household. We did a yes. Denmark. We did a Scandinavia trip almost twenty years ago, based on solely on Rick Steves, and it was fantastic. So, well, cheers I, to I went, you. I went to the Cinque Terre in '97 for the first yeah. time and you didn't hear much English being spoken there. It was, it was mainly Italians that were there. Mm-hmm. Um, and we ran into a few Canadians, which was kind of odd, but, um, uh, went back in 2016 and it was, it was very touristy, uh, mm-hmm. Americans, unfortunately, but, um, nothing against Americans. It's just, it takes away <laughs> a little bit from the Italian experience. Yeah. So, um, but the thing that I love about the Cinque Terre is just how complex all the villages there are. Um, you know, each, each house is going to be, you know, four or five stories tall, skinny to build on a hillside into a cliff. And there are, you know, the streets are, you know, in some cases only five or six feet wide. Mm-hmm. And they're just these footpaths that meander around uh, between buildings and, and behind them. And you work your way up through the hills and there's stairs everywhere. Mm-hmm. And people have lived here for a thousand, you know, 2000 years climbing these steps. And it's just amazing to think about all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the layers and layers and layers of, of development upon development. And I'm just fascinated seeing, I guess, how, newer development is influenced by previous developments uh-huh. and getting to see um, just layers of history poke through. Yeah. That makes any sense. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But uh, the Cinque Terre, I love that place. Um, I just like to find a place that wasn't as touristy that was similar to that um, to go visit. So, and then uh, another place I would say would be the Sagrada Familia in Barcelona. And I don't know if you've ever been there or not. Um, it's on my list. It's on my bucket list. Uh, I had seen it when I was there in 97 uh, from the outside. And it was, I think the nave was still under construction then. Um, but when I went in 2016, you could walk into the church and it was incredible. Yeah. So it's supposed to be done in another, well, in 2026, I believe. So I'm 
planning on going there for that. So, Oh yeah, absolutely. I think it's uh, I have a good friend who's not an architect and he was over there. I didn't know he was over there and I get this random picture like inside, you know, looking up at the central spot, you know, the central and he's like, where am I? I was like, Sagrada Familia, Barcelona. He's like, how'd you know? I was like, come on, I'm an architect, dude. <laughs> but, you know, he even as a layperson was just, he just raved about it. Just, he called me when they got back and was like, I, he goes, I was moved because I was moved emotionally and spiritually going to the space, which, yep. which is, you know, that's what we want to do as architects, right? Where we can. Right. It Good. is. Any other, um, what are some of your favorite projects that you've worked on over the years? You yourself. Um, let's see. Well, I had a, a project that I worked on at a previous firm um, mm-hmm. with a current client of ours, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, Todd Palmiter was oh, yeah. my main contact on that project. And I think he was, um, I think he may have been pretty new at, at Hamilton County Parks um, at the time. But it was it was a, um, a campground office and um like a general store type place basically yeah. for Winton woods. And, um, that was a project where, uh, they, they had a floor plan that they had come up with and mm-hmm. just wanted somebody to put a skin on it basically. And I took a look at it and, and saw some ways that things could be done a little bit better and mm-hmm. simplified it all and sort of presented them. What, what we see now there at Winton woods, uh, they loved it, went with it. And, um, uh, you know, it changed a little bit here and there, but, but, uh, for the most part, it was, it was one of the first buildings that I guess I had really designed and, and it was, it was all my design, I guess. Yeah. 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 Um, you were the kind of the lead contact and kind of the right. major force behind I, it. Yeah. I had done a lot of, a lot of work on other projects at that point in time, um, design wise, but it was always. I do an initial design. Somebody else takes it from there and they, yeah. they do something else to it. And it ends up being something completely different, yeah. you know, and um, that never happens in architecture yeah. firms. Does it? <laughs> so th- this was, this was the first time that I had something that was from start to end. It was, it was something that I had envisioned. So, so that was a lot of fun. Um, uh, at MSA mm-hmm. uh, diamond Oaks was, was interesting to work on. Yeah. Um, uh, I've worked on the, the entrance atrium tower piece there, yeah. uh, detailing all of that. And that, that was a lot of fun. Um, it turned out beautifully too. It looks really that, even strong, but almost 10 years later now, it looks fantastic. Yeah. Gosh, that has been 10 years. Yeah. I just oh. aged you. Sorry, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's so. awesome. So, um, you know, we talked about COVID, but aside from COVID, kind of in general architecture, design, built environments, what do you see are some other trends or issues that have been affecting that in recent years and, you know, moving into the future post-COVID? What are some trends or issues that are going to be more influential now, say, than maybe back when you started your career? I think climate change is a big thing um that, that's that's going to be shaping architecture uh that's it, it wasn't really around it wasn't really yeah. talked about when i first graduated from college um, then you started with a, a little bit of you started to hear a little bit about green design and sustainability and lead uh but i i think things are going to move beyond 
lead and rating systems. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I, what, what I'm gathering now from just talking to clients and, and just talking to friends out on the, out on the street, whatever um, people seem to be much more concerned about their impact on the environment. Um, they're a lot more concerned about recycling and um, just getting efficient vehicles and uh, not being as wasteful, I guess. Yeah. And I think that that's going to, um, that's going to translate into the way we build our buildings. Um, I think it's going to affect that a lot more. Yeah, def- I definitely think I, it's, it's, you know, when we, we've been in this business about the same amount of time, um, it's definitely, remember it was more of a novelty at the beginning and now it's just more, in my mind, it's just kind of what you do, right? You know, you just, specifications design of buildings it, it's it's much more in our daily thought um, is. which is good i think it's good right. to see it's good to see but i but i do think it's going to go beyond that i i think some building materials are going to start to get a little bit more scarce or yeah. um, people are going to start realizing just how much um pollution is is caused by the fabrication of these building materials like concrete um yeah you know it's it does a lot of polluting, but it also lasts forever and you don't have to worry about having to rebuild things. So yeah, it doesn't rot generally. It doesn't rot <laughs> unless you detail it wrong. Right. And then you, right. That's another story. But I, I think, I think recycled materials are probably going to become a little bit more important and, and used yeah. a lot more and recyclable re, uh, materials are probably going to become, um, you know, something that we're thinking a little bit more about. Sure. Now, I know you do a lot of work in the public safety space. I know you've done a lot of uh, police and fire and some, you know, master planning for fire. What are your, what are some of the trends in that sub market, you know, public safety design that maybe are changing or, or have not changed, you know, talk, talk a little bit about that, that area of your expertise, particularly. Well, um, a few years ago I was, I was working on a fire station and, I don't remember what the circumstances were exactly, you know, what was going on in the news at the time, but it kind of surprised me when I was asked to figure out a way to make it so that the front door of the building was a little bit more secure. They were afraid, you know, could somebody from the community come in here and try to shoot up the place? Yeah. And that's something that I never would have thought about. Uh, prior to that with a, with a fire station. Yeah. 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 Um, but, but I, I think, and, and since then, you know, that's, that concept has come up a few other times mm-hmm. and I, I, I think things are changing a little bit and, and we've got to be able to, to change the way we do our fire stations accordingly. But I, I think security is, is becoming more of an issue with, with these buildings. Yeah. It's, it's gotta be a tough balance. I'm imagining because right there, public servants and, you know, beacons of public service, usually kind of the most forward facing in any community police and fire, but yet you got to be counterintuitive, right? You have to be secured, but open public yet private. So. Right. Right. Any interesting projects right now you're working on in that market you'd like to kind of talk about that have gotten you excited? Well, um, the uh, Sharonville police station is wrapping up. Um, that should be done any, any, any time now, I guess we should be getting our certificate of occupancy. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, uh, that turned out to be a really great building. And, um, actually, uh, it seems like it's, it's probably going to work out pretty well with COVID as well. Uh-huh. 
there's a there's a definite division between um, the the folks that are out on patrol. They're down uh-huh. their their spaces are down on the first floor, and the place where the places where they will be frequenting are all down on the first floor. Mm-hmm. The offices, the investigators, everybody else, that's up on the second floor, and that's all just office space up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's kind of interesting to see how that layout, which was done far before COVID is it kind of naturally layers the building then to help. Right. And, 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 and it's, you know, it's going to help them to be able to carry on operations through COVID once, once they move into the building uh, without having to make modifications mm-hmm. to the, to the building. So now, the, now in this part of the country to traditionally, this is the general over, right. Probably an overgeneralization, but you know, you're a small town Ohio guy. I'm a small town Ohio guy. Those kinds of buildings, typically, especially when they're in smaller communities or smaller cities, tend to be fairly, how shall we say, traditional in massing and form, right? Right. I know Sharonville's a little different. Why don't you talk a little bit about that building? How it's really kind of outside the box thinking as far as the architecture. Uh, Sharonville is so the, the city of Sharonville. Um, there, there is a large residential component there. Uh, but there's also a large industrial component and, uh, you know, the area where the building is, is constructed is surrounded by, uh, industrial buildings. Um, there's a a self-storage unit, uh, building to the, to the one side of it. Um, there's an old Ford factory and and spice factory back behind it, which is now office building. Um, uh, so on all sides, it was, it was surrounded by, industrial buildings. Um, so we knew that, that doing a traditional, uh, you know, Greek revival, uh, police station looking building would not be appropriate for that location. And I think the city was on board with that from, from day one. So, um, so that was good. But, um, the, uh, the base of the building is hardened, uh, and, and everything above that sits like, like a box basically mm-hmm. sitting on top of another box. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's for security reasons primarily, but it became an aesthetic thing as well. So that's cool. Yeah. It's looking great. And, um, pretty excited to see it wrap up and photography yep. and get kind of get out there in the world. And I think it's going to be a, it's a great building for the city too. It's a good icon for them. Right. A new fresher look. So yep. Another uh, another building that we've got uh, that's just wrapping up is or just wrapped up, I guess. Um, Miami Township Fire Rescue up in Yellow Springs, and that- Ohio's Boulder. That's what I tell people. Yellow Springs is Ohio's Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> Yellow Springs is a is a very small town. Um, and so it, it's kind of surprised me when, uh, when they wanted to do something that was a little bit more adventurous. And, um, and so we started off with, with something that was, that was a lot more modern. And, um, unfortunately, because partly because of the location of the town, um, partially because of projects that were being constructed at the time in the vicinity and the lack of workforce, um, those came in, uh, you know, the, the, the bids came in over budget on that project. So and we ended redesign. up having to, to um, change building materials and we changed it to brick. So it's mm-hmm. a little bit more traditional in that, it, in that it's brick, uh, but the form is a little bit, um, uh, a little bit less traditional yeah. and they were happy with that. And, and all along as design decisions had to be made or value engineering had to be done, 
um, we, you know, we suggested getting rid of one thing here and, and, you know, changing the roof or whatever. And, um, anytime that we made, uh, that we made a suggestion like that, they would say, well, this component relates it back to the, to the residential area around here. So we want to keep that or this, if we do this instead, it's going to be more traditional. We don't want that. We want something yeah. that's going to be forward looking. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting working with that sort of mentality. Yeah. It's a, it's a really cool community. Um, I love yellow Springs. I don't know if you're, um, uh, you know, Letterman has a show on Netflix. It's called my, my next guest. And yep. he does a, uh, have you seen the episode with David, with um, Dave Chappelle? Dave Chappelle, yes. And it, I yeah. think it's really great because it gives people a sense of the culture of Yellow Springs. And, you know, that was instrumental for him. But it just shows you it's a, it's a unique little spot in, in the middle of uh, Southwest Ohio that I, I've told people it's Ohio's boulder. That's the only way to describe it. Um, <laughs> Northside Cincinnati's Boulder, but Yellow Springs is the state's Boulder. I think that in Athens. <laughs> so. It was interesting. I was talking to somebody from Yellow Springs um, recently, and I, I mentioned the Dave the David Letterman episode, and uh, he was like, "You know, I just saw a clip of that, and and I guess I saw him." It's like I didn't know who it was. I was like, "Who's that old guy with a big, huge white beard that looks like Santa Claus <laughs> wandering around town with Dave Chappelle?" <laughs> Because they there all know Dave Chappelle and they just, yeah. they leave him alone. They're like, you know, he's just one of us. He's just, you know, let him live his life. We aren't going to follow him he's around, a, and photograph him or anything. He's a neighbor. Yeah. But yeah, he's a neighbor. But yeah, he couldn't figure out who that Santa Claus looking guy was that was walking around with Dave. <laughs> Dave. <laughs> we ran into him at the baseball game a couple of years ago and a man, I got a picture with him. You know, he's a Ball State guy. So it was, yep. he's tall, thin. He's got that Santa Claus beer going on. He's definitely found his own mojo, I guess, in retirement. So <laughs> one of the other areas I like to talk about, Dan, is enduring impact. Um, so you talked a little bit about, um, you know, you had a, a couple of previous, you know, mentors and, and teachers. But, you know, if Dan, if I took Dan Montgomery out of your shell and put you into an organization is to give them advice. So what is Dan Montgomery, the architect, learned or seen in his career that could help other organizations or individuals have an impact. What's your wisdom, Dan? Hmm. <laughs> well, at, when I was, when I was just out of school and, and actually when I was in school as a, as a co-op student, um, there, there were a lot of people that advised me on things, I guess. Um, uh, you know, I, I graduated and thought I knew a lot and, and whatever. And I was very idealistic, <laughs> like we all are. We all, yeah. And uh, I'm going to be published. And, um, <laughs> and there, there were a lot of, of folks out there that were older um, architects that sort of grounded me a little bit, I guess, um, mm -hmm. uh, gave me advice on things and really sort of helped me to learn the profession because in school, you don't learn how to, how to put a building together. You don't learn that stuff. You learn how to design. Yeah. Um, you don't learn how to make things stand up. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Uh, you might think that you do, but you don't. Um, so there, there were just a lot of folks out there that, that helped me learn how to, um, put together a set of drawings. Uh, how to detail certain things, 
how to make sure that my bases are covered and and make sure that I know what I need to know about a specific product before I specify it or before I draw it up. Yeah. Um, folks that took me out to job sites and showed me, you know, this is what a metal stud looks like. This is what you're this is what you're drafting up. Take a look at it in three dimensions. Um, and and that just helped me uh, help. It, it helped me a lot in my career. So sure. now um, I've been, I, I guess, when did I graduate? 97. So I, I've been around for a few years. So he's a young cat. <laughs> I'm, I'm always trying to, when, when I'm working with somebody um, that's new to the game, I'm trying to advise them all along through the process like this is this is how we do this this is why we do this i'm not just going to say do this mm -hmm. I, i'm usually going to say do this and here's why you're going to do it this way um there are other ways that you could do it but that doesn't cover your basis like this does why is that important you think for you to kind of help narrow it down for them a bit it's just sort of passing along the knowledge of the profession, I guess. Um, it was it was passed down to me from from folks and and just their life experiences, uh, their experiences with the profession, and and this is just the way it's been done for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. um, if if there's some of that that hasn't changed, we need to make sure that we're sort of imparting that on the the next generation. In your heart, what's important for young architects to be aware of? Or what's a good mindset for them to have when they start the profession, you know, post-school, once they get into the real world? What's something they need, they need to be aware of? There's, there's still a lot to learn. Um, and you're going to spend the entire, you know, the, the rest of your career learning. You've never learned everything that you need to know. An architect never knows all that they need to know. Uh, you're always every project you're going to be you're going to have to be learning something new, and the architect can't know everything about a project. That's not really, or know everything about each facet of a project. Um, what your job is is really to to get the folks together who do know about that, whether it be a civil engineer or a structural engineer mechanical engineer and let them use their expertise to advise you on things. Mm. But there's, you're going to spend the rest of your career learning basically. Mm. That's great. Actually, Dan, that's a great, I already got your quote now for the intro graphic and for the <laughs> clip at the beginning of the episode. If you've listened to any of them, we always do a little clip at the very beginning before we do the intro. So that was great. Okay. So how does architecture have an enduring impact on the community? Um, architecture really shapes the community. Um, you know, if you think about any, any city that you've been to, that's memorable, it's probably going to be the something architectural that, that's going to come to mind. Um, think of downtown Cincinnati you might think of fountain square. Uh, that's the, the square is, is architecture, the, the fountain, the, the buildings surrounding it. It's an outdoor room, things like that. If you, um, think about New York city, you might think of, of the empire state building, the Chrysler building. You're going to think of, of great architectural monuments. Um, 
architecture really gives us a place to celebrate life events, to mourn, to um, places to worship, um, just memorable places, places where life can occur. Without architecture, you'd just be in a field, and, and that's there's nothing really memorable about a field. So, totally agree. All right, one last question for you, Dan. Actually, one other thing on that. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about um, bring it. uh, And I've I've mentioned this before, but uh, years ago, I remember reading an interview with Renzo Piano, famous Mm -hmm. architect from Italy. Uh, He said something. I can't find the quote now, but um, what he said sort of stuck with me. He said something to the effect of, "In Italy, when times are good." We build beautiful public spaces so that when times are bad, we can still live like we're wealthy. And mm. that's I found that to be very true in my travels in Europe. Um, I, I and I, I'd like to think that we do that here. Um, we don't all the time uh, just because nobody wants to spend the money on things and whatever. But I, I really wish we did do more of that like they do over in Europe. Um, just creating beautiful public spaces. All right, Dan, what are you excited about right now? Is your hold up in your house in Northside with Grizz and Brett? (laughs) What am I excited about? Yeah, what are you excited about? The end of COVID. (laughs) Getting, getting uh, Getting to the point where we can travel again where we can hang out with friends again, where we can go to bars and restaurants and not have to worry about that person right behind me that just coughed, you know, something like that. Um, the, the, the possibility of, of traveling again is, is exciting. Yeah. Totally agree. Totally agree. And as a parent with three kids <laughs> between the ages of eight and 10, I can totally agree with you guys <laughs> it's time to hit the road folks uh it's good to see you as always and um yeah. really enjoyed our conversation this is gonna be great stuff and um just appreciate everything you're doing for the firm and the good work you're doing and helping us manage the chaos together <laughs> as we all move forward on the socially distanced remote worked environment of the msa design starship <laughs> right <laughs> well thanks for having me thank you for joining us on today's podcast Building Ideas is presented by MSA Design. To learn more about MSA Design, visit us on the web at www.msaarch.com.